Good day, everyone. Welcome to Western Alliance Bank Corporation's fourth quarter 2023 earnings call. You may also view the presentation today via webcast through the company's website at www.westernalliancebankcorporation.com. I'd now like to turn the call over to Miles Pundelic, Director of Investor Relations and Corporate Development. Please go ahead. Thank you, welcome to Western Alliance Bank's fourth quarter 2023 conference call. Our speakers today are Ken Vecchioni, President and Chief Executive Officer, Dale Gibbons, Chief Financial Officer, and Tim Bruckner, Chief Banking Officer, will join for Q&A. Before I hand the call over to Ken, please note that today's presentation contains forward-looking statements which are subject to risk, uncertainties, and assumptions, except as required by law, the company does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements. For more complete discussion of the risk and uncertainties that cause actual results to differ materially from any forward-looking statements, please refer to the company's SEC filings, including the form I K-Files yesterday, which are available on the company's website. Now for opening remarks, I'd like to turn the call over to Ken Vecchioni. Uh, thank you, Miles, and good morning, everyone. I'll make some brief comments about our fourth quarter and full year 2023 earnings before turning the call over to Dell, who will review our financial results in more detail after I discuss our 20. 24 Outlook, uh, Tim Bruckner will join us as usual for Q&A. Western Alliance's diversified national commercial business strategy continued to drive strong momentum in the fourth quarter as we generated earnings per share of $1.33 or $1.91, excluding 58 cents of one-time notable items. The quarter featured both healthy balance sheet growth and additional balance sheet repositioning actions to further optimize our funding base. Looking past these notable items, which Dale will explain shortly, highlights for the quarter included solid loan and deposit growth, ongoing capital and liquidity accumulation, and continued stable asset quality. Deposit growth of $1 billion allowed us to continue to selectively reduce debt and borrowings. In Q4, we fully repaid $1.3 billion of advances from the bank term funding program, as well as a $300 million, 6.5% AmeriHome senior notes, which were not replaced with new borrowings. Regarding the AmeriHome notes, we seized an opportunity to repay this higher cost debt at a discount. Additionally, our portion of the industry-wide FDIC special assessment to replenish the deposit insurance fund totaled $66.3 million. Loans rose $850 million in the quarter, bolstered by CNI growth within our regional footprint. Western Alliance begins 2024 supported by a strong capital base and liquidity position. CET1 expanded approximately 150 basis points during the year to 10.8%, which equates to 9.8% when including AOCI. 80% of our deposits are either insured or collateralized, which ranks among the highest levels of the 50 largest U.S. banks. Despite the industry's challenges, our total deposits increased 3% year-over-year. Asset quality also remains in very good shape, with limited net charge-offs of only six basis points of average loans in 2023. Limited realized losses amidst a normalized credit backdrop is indicative, in our view, of the merits of lending with low advance rates, adhering to conservative underwriting standards, and approaching credit mitigation proactively. Continuing to shift our funding base from borrowings to core deposits better positions us to grow loans in a rate environment in flux likely to decline later this year. We have made investments and leadership additions in order to drive increased CNI growth in our regional footprint, expand fee income opportunities across client relationships, and complement the growth in our national business lines, particularly our leading, leading deposit-focused verticals. Overall, in 2024, we look forward to consistent balance sheet and BPNR growth with higher liquidity and improving capital. This will empower Western Alliance to continue partnering with our clients on their most important projects. Dale will now take you through the financial performance. Afterwards, I'll, I will provide you with our 2024 outlook. Well, thank you, Ken. For the year, Western Alliance produced net revenue of $2.6 billion, net income of $722 million, and EPS of $654. Net revenue increased 3% from the prior year, demonstrating the durability and flexibility of our business model. Net interest income rose $123 million, or approximately 6%, to over $2.3 billion, 
notwithstanding our curtailed loan growth and the completion of a series of asset sales earlier in the year. Non-interest income declined 44 million to 281, from repositioning actions, the impact of fair value marks, as well as the slower mortgage purchase market. Non-interest expense of 1.6 billion increased 466 million year over year, primarily due to higher earnings credit rates and deposit costs driven by the rising rate environment. Turning to the fourth quarter trends and business drivers, we generated reported pre-provision net revenue of 220 million, net income of 148 million, and EPS of $1.33. As part of balance sheet optimization efforts conducted earlier to support and improve our earnings trajectory, we repaid 300 million of AmeriHome senior notes at a discount. We utilized this gain to better position the balance sheet by selling securities as well as MSR fair value adjustments in sales, which combined produced a pre-tax loss of 4.5 million, in addition to the 66 million FDIC special assessment. When excluding these one-time notable items, we generated adjusted net income of 211 million and EPS of $1.91. Net interest income increased 4.7 million during the quarter to 592 million from higher average earning asset balances and reduced higher, bar higher cost borrowings. GAAP non-interest income was 91 million, or excluding notable items, 126 million, which was down approximately 3 million from Q3. During the quarter, Wall sold approximately 200 million of mortgage servicing rights, which improved our capital ratios despite incurring a loss of $11 million on disposition. As prepayment speeds began to recover from historically low levels, the valuation of mortgage servicing rights moved lower at an accelerated pace, which resulted in a $14 million fair value adjustment net of hedging. We don't believe this aggregate $25 million charge is indicative of the earnings profile of our mortgage banking business. Lot volume has rebounded 29% year over year and may be indicative of continued momentum into 2024. Since the December rate rally and resulting lower mortgage rates, we have experienced incremental refinance volume and firming margins. Should mortgage rates trend lower in future quarters, we would expect this business to benefit, which has not been captured in our go-forward guidance. Additionally, income from equity investments was elevated by approximately $8 million due to outside gains from solar tax credit investments with higher than expected performance during the quarter. GAAP non-interest expense was 462 million, or excluding noted items, 435 million, a quarterly increase of 9 million. Deposit cost growth, growth slowed markedly, increasing 3 million in Q4 as our settlement services and homeowners association businesses experienced strong growth from new customers that surpassed seasonal declines in mortgage warehouse. Provision expense was 9.3 million, reflecting steady asset quality. Lastly, our effective tax rate of approximately 30% was temporarily, temporarily elevated in Q4, primarily because of timing issues related to low-income housing units that were not placed into service in 2023. The 2024 tax rate should reset to 22 to 23%. Loan sell for investment grew 850 million to 50.3 billion, while deposits increased 1 billion to 55.3 at quarter end. Mortgage servicing rights declined to $1.1 billion from MSR sales and reduced valuations resulting from the lower rate environment. Overall, we continue to build high-quality liquid asset levels and on-balance sheet liquidity via strong deposit growth. Debt repayments previously discussed reduced investments in cash by $351 million from September 30th. Strong deposit growth over the last three quarters has allowed us to cut total borrowings and debt by half from the end of Q1. Finally, tangible book value per share increased $3.06 or 7% over the prior quarter and 16% year over year to $46.72 for retained earnings and reduced drag from negative all other comprehensive income. Loans held for investment growth was predominantly from CNI categories, some of which was rooted in higher end line utilization. Construction and land loans are up $220 million, with a little under half of this contribution from lot banking. Given the national undersupply of homes and a greater likelihood of near-term rate cuts, we are still positive about the macroeconomics for this business. Deposit growth of $1 billion was achieved despite typical seasonal declines in mortgage warehouse deposits related to tax and insurance payments. We continue to experience broad-based growth from our specialized value-added deposit channels. 
HOA had its best Q4 ever, and we, we believe it will retain and possibly extend its leading market share in the country that it achieved in Q3 of last year. Settlement services, tech and innovation, corporate trust, and our digital consumer channel all grew materially and contributed to well-diversified growth. Non-interest-bearing DDAs comprise 26% of total deposits, of which 45% have no cash payment of earnings credits. The decline in non-interest-bearing balances was primarily driven by the expected $3 billion decrease from typical mortgage warehouse seasonality of property tax and insurance escrow funds. There has been no client attrition associated with these outflows, and this decline is recovering as anticipated this quarter. Turning out net, deposit, net interest drivers, HFI loan yield decreased eight basis points due to the full quarter impact of the $1.3 billion reclassification of loans from health for sale to health for investment at the end of Q3. This coincided with, coincidentally resulted in health for sale yields climbing 31 basis points. Going forward, we anticipate HFI yields to continue to be supported by an average of 2.9 billion of loans repricing or maturing per quarter in 2024. The yield on total investments expanded eight basis points in Q4 to 4.99%. The securities portfolio grew 1.9 billion to 13 billion from the ongoing H2LA bill which has increased treasuries from $900 million at the end of Q1 of last year to approximately $4.9 billion at year-end. The cost of interest-bearing deposits increased seven basis points, markedly slower than the prior quarter, and the total cost of funds increased two basis points to 2.82 due to an increase in demand deposits and lower short-term borrowings. Deposit growth enabled a $768 million increase a reduction in average short-term borrowings, as well as six basis points of improvement in the cost of interest-bearing liabilities. In aggregate, net interest income increased approximately $5 million, while the net interest margin of 365 came in at the midpoint of our Q4 guidance. As net interest income growth was exceeded by the growth rate of average earning assets. Non-interest expenses were impacted by $27 million in net notable items this quarter. Adjusting for these one-time items, as well as deposit costs, our adjusted efficiency ratio was what rose 100 basis points to 51%. We expect deposit costs will experience relief from a cessation of rate hikes and should fall as rates decline. For historical context, average ECR balances were $19.9 billion in the fourth quarter compared to $17 billion in Q3 and $15.4 billion in Q4 of 22. We expect ECR-related deposits to remain a consistent relative proportion of our deposit base as total deposits grow. Based upon our rate forecast and generally high beta repricing for ECR-related deposits, we expect such pricing to largely decline in lockstep, lockstep with rate cuts, offsetting any potential net interest margin declines. Asset quality metrics continue to remain stable and in line with what we reported last quarter. The aggregate net increase in special mention loans and classified assets was only $7 million from the Q3 level. Non-performing assets increased to $281 million, equating to 40 basis points of total assets, which is five basis points above the third quarter. Quarterly net loan charge-offs were $8.5 million, or seven basis points of average loans, which was aligned with Q3 net charge-offs. Provision expense of $9.3 million was a function of loan growth and a slightly improved Moody's consensus forecast. Though our consensus and severely versed weightings for our ACL still incorporated 80% recessionary outlook. Our allowance increased $10 million from the prior quarter for to $337 million, and the ACL ratio was 73 basis points, covering 135% of non-performing loans. Looking at the reserve loss, you'll see an updated look on the, on the context behind our allowance, which when considering insured loans or in those in low-loss categories, the allowance shifts up to 1.31% of loans. Our CT1 ratio rose 20 basis points to 10.8% or 9.8% when adjusted for the AOCI debit. Our tangible common equity to total assets grew approximately 50 basis points from Q3 to 7.3% from earnings and the, improved, and, and the improved AOCI position. 
tangible book value per share increased $3.06 from Q3 to $46.72 from earnings and recapture of AOCI marks. The $220 million improvement in AOCI resulted from substantial decreases in intermediate term treasury rates during the quarter. Our consistent upward trajectory in tangible book value per share has outpaced peers by almost 5x since 2013, including strong growth in 2023. Over most time periods, Western Alliance continues to generate a top quartile total shareholder return relative to both asset size peers and the regional banking index. I'll hand the call back to Ken. Uh, thanks, Dale. Our guidance for 2024 is to build on the second half momentum, momentum of 2023 and progress towards returning to above industry returns. In the first half of 2024, the company will emphasize liquidity growth over loan growth, drive capital above 11%, and further build our HQI portfolio, which will temper earnings growth for the first half of the year. As these goals are achieved, earnings momentum will accelerate in the second half of 2024 and into 2025. So for the full year of 2024, we expect uh, continued thoughtful balance sheet growth driven by our diversified business model with an origination mix designed to drive net interest income above 2023 levels. Loan and core deposits are expected to grow $2 billion and $8 billion respectively for the year. Core deposits driven growth should continue to push our loan to deposit ratio towards a mid 80% level by the middle of this year. Regarding capital, we are targeting a CDT1 ratio above 11%, reflecting steady organic capital accumulation in concert with balance sheet growth. Then interest income should grow 5 to 10% from a Q4 2023 annualized jumping off point. This forecast assumes four 25 basis point cuts backloaded in the year. We expect any future NIM compression resulting from the rate cuts to be matched by comparable deposit cost declines in non-interest expense, which will be accretive to earnings. Non-interest income should increase, increase 10 to 20% from an adjusted 2023 baseline level of 397, 397 million, which excludes 2023's mark-to-market adjustments and the impact of asset sales as we prioritize growing commercial banking-related fee income from holistic customer relationships. Mortgage banking-related income will be somewhat dependent on the rate environment and mortgage buying, um, I should say, and mortgage buying. But we're encouraged that with the recent low rate environment, application volume is picking up with firmer margins thus far in early 2024. Non-interest expense, inclusive of the ECR-related deposit costs, should rise only 0 to 2% from an annualized adjusted Q4 baseline of $1,740,000,000 and allow for continued operating leverage. In aggregate, these factors will enable Wall to consistently grow PPNR throughout the year. Asset quality remains manageable, and projects continue. And we project continued uh, support from our sponsors. Based on our conservative underwriting and low advance rates, net charge-offs are expected to be 10 to 15 basis points for the year, as the economic cycle normalizes. Lastly, we expect the effective tax rate to revert between 22 and 23% starting in Q1. At this time, uh, Tyndale and I are happy to take your questions. Thank you. As a reminder, if you'd like to ask a question, you can press star followed by one on your telephone keypad. Please ensure you're unmuted locally when asking your question. Our first question for today comes from Casey Hare of Jefferies. The line is now open. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Good morning, everyone. Um, so wanted to start on the four cuts and how that impacts uh, the PPNR guide. Um, obviously, it hits you guys a number of ways. Um, Dale, I think you said that it does not uh, – your fees does not account for any upside in mortgage banking. Uh, it sounds like the deposit costs within expenses are 100% beta. Uh, can you just confirm that? And then the, the four cuts, how would that, what kind of deposit beta are you uh, expecting for, uh, you know, uh, the, the non-ECR component that, that, and how that would impact NII? 
Yeah, in, in aggregate, I mean, to, to getting to PPNR, the, the net impact is fairly nominal. I mean, we're, as, as we've indicated in the past, if you just look at net interest income, we're modestly asset sensitive, so that would be a little bit of a decrement. But of course, you alluded to the ETR price deposits, which are, we expect to fall and, and, and fall in lockstep. So put those together, we think we're again now modestly Modestly liability sensitive, and we'd have a net benefit then in PPNR, excluding the Amerihome piece, which you know, which is the option on uh, this is a call option if, if things get much better in that space. Okay, so Amerihome would be gravy if it did, but obviously if it's back half loaded, it, it might might be modest. Yeah, yeah. So, so the mix might look a little different. I mean, if you had a more accelerated rate decline, maybe you're going to see, um, you know, a you know a faster um, decline, perhaps in net interest income, reflecting the net interest income profile that we have. But again, when you layer in the deposit cost, I think it's going to eliminate that. Okay. And then, so the loan to deposit growth guide for 24, you got six billion of of liquidity to play with. What, what is what is the plan for that? Uh, build build the, the bond book, build cash, pay down borrowings. Just just wondering what your plans are there. Yeah. So when I think about the year, I think about it. Uh, the first half of the year, uh, we're building the liquidity profile, as you mentioned. Uh, with that, we're really going to build our HQLA portfolio, and uh, we're looking to drive our loan to deposit ratios, as I said, in the mid eighties. From there. It's, it's, um, it's growth uh, towards uh, a much bigger and better 2025. So uh, we need to continue to reposition ourselves. We think we'll have that done by the end of uh, the second quarter. Uh, and then it'll be a little bit more traditional uh, earnings as you see them, as you have seen them historically from us. But, you know, I would say, you know, and when you think about it, um, the deposit and loans are more coming in across the year in, our, in a routable fashion. About $500 million, uh, per quarter for loans and approximately $2 billion uh, per quarter uh, for deposits. Gotcha. Thank you. And then just, just last one, Dale, you mentioned the the DDA uh, sounds like it's recovering uh, seasonally within Mortgage Warehouse. Just, just any update you can share on how much of that $3 billion ha has come back in? Well, so it's really based upon semi-annual property tax payments, largely in California, and and so so we would expect that we're going to get, uh, you know, you know half of that or two thirds of that, you know, this quarter, and then and then the rest that would start coming in. The the the, the payments due in in May are are less dramatic in terms of kind of the uh, the, the the dip that we see. Uh, meanwhile, you know, other warehouse funds, um, you know, look to be uh, look to be Growing um, consistently, and um, and and we're also off to a good start in our HOA biz for Q1. Casey, let me just add, you know, uh, right now we're on track to beat the two billion dollars for our Q1, uh, and that's inclusive of the HOA deposits coming back in. Great, thanks, guys. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephen Alexopoulos from JP Morgan. Your line is now open. Please go ahead. Hi, everybody. I wanted to start on the margin. So you were 365 in the quarter, right in the middle of what you had guided to. Dale, for you, how should we think about the NIM trending, the backdrop of four cuts? And then it's funny, when I look at where the NIM was, well, we had a more normal curve. I mean, you guys were like 450 but there's a completely different balance sheet today. So assuming we eventually get a normal curve, normal level of rates, like what's a reasonable NIM for this balance sheet? So, um, hello, Steve, that's uh, Ken. Uh, what I would say is, you know, again, thinking about the year, the first two quarters of the year, uh, NIM should track uh, consistent with our Q4 NIM of 365. And then Q3 and Q4, the NIM will gently roll down as the price, as the rate cuts come into play. But offsetting that NIM decline uh, will be uh, 
the reduction in ECR uh, expenses. So what's transpired is we, you know, we have and we expect to continue to have you know, considerably more liquidity on the balance sheet and that, that is going to you know, kind of depress NIM in a, basically a permanent basis. Where can we be kind of going forward? I think we could be close to kind of where we are. So, you know, maybe the three and a half range is kind of sustainable kind of over, over kind of a broader economic, you know, cycle than what we'd see. We'd probably have a little bit better uh, return on the, on the residential portfolio than we presently have. But for the most part, I think our numbers, you know, rather than being in the fours, uh, I think we're, we're destined for, for the three level here going forward. Got it. Free handle. Okay. And then at the, uh, on the expense guide, so you guys were 437 million on the ECR deposit cost in 23. What, what's assumed within this expense guidance for 2024 for the cost of ECR deposits? Like, where is that roughly? Yeah, so that's fairly um, fairly stable um, until we get to, as we indicated earlier, you know, we have a back end loaded, um, you know, four cuts starting in June uh, in the in the, in the rate, and so that would that would kind of curtail, um, you know, based upon based upon kind of how that plays out. Um, that's on you. Know, when Dale gives that answer, your uh, I look at it. Sorry, Steve. You're on a choppy line a little bit, Steve. Um, but I would say, oh. to Dale's point, if he, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yep. Steve? Gotcha. Uh, I would say, just keep in mind, you, you're, you're thinking about, your question is based on total dollars. And so while the rate will be coming down, you know, total dollars may still rise as we continue to push up on deposit growth. So just keep in, in mind the rate volume impact there. Okay? Yep. Got it. Okay. Ken, could I just finally ask you a big picture question? So when I look at the company, right, years back we had the financial crisis, and you guys made quite a few changes after that, right, built out national businesses. You had top decile growth for a long time. Then we had March Madness. You again pivoted, right? You made adjustments, pushing up insured deposits, changing liquidity, et cetera. When I look at the 2024 guide, it looks like more of the same in the first half. But then when we get to the second half of the year and then 2025, what does this company then look like? Do you throttle up loan growth? From where we are, do you throttle that deposit growth? Are you back to a growth bank? Like, how how do you see the world right now, in the longer term for the company? Thanks. Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, you know, we started to pivot, by the way, uh, in the, the third quarter of 2022, uh, with uh, higher liquidity and higher capital, and uh, we certainly were very. Uh, happy that we did uh, as we entered March Madness. It really served us uh, well. And that's informed our decision making as to why we want to keep that moving forward. And as you said, we'll have that com basically completed uh, by the first half of, of 2024. Then I think what you're going to see is a little bit of the uh, same bank, but I don't think we're going to put our foot on the accelerator as hard as we used to put uh, put push down on the, on the throttle there. And one reason is we never got really paid for that. So, you know, up until the end of 2022, we were probably growing deposits and loans about 24 to 25% per year. And we, we didn't see that in our, in our valuation. And in fact, people always got nervous with that and said, gee, there must be a credit problem that was, that was lurking uh, behind. But really, over that period of time, we only had $29 million of net losses. So what we're going to do is we're going to be targeting for above industry trend growth. Uh, going forward in the back half of 24 and into 25, and we think we'll get rewarded for that uh, and take away any concerns that they'll always linger uh, about uh, going way back even to 2006 and 7 and 8 that people bring up. And I think we'll run from there. Uh, but, you know, we should be, you know, higher in uh, return on equity, higher on return on assets, um, but not to the old levels of coming back to 2010 to 2013, 2014, 2015. Okay? Got it. Yep, that's great color. 
Thanks for taking my questions. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ibrahim Punawala from Bank of America. Your line is now open. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning. I guess maybe just uh, one bigger picture question around earnings, if I have the math right, uh, in terms of your earnings outlook. You probably shake out around 8 bucks in EPS for 24. Should we expect EPS to dip in the first half before reaccelerating in the back half of the year? How, how do you think about earnings growth relative to the 191 you printed in the fourth quarter? Just given the moving pieces around what you're doing with HQLA, um, the benefit of rate cuts in the back half, uh, would love to hear just the earnings trajectory that you're looking at. That's a good. That's a really good question, Ibrahim. So, um, and maybe implicitly in your in your comment. So, the first quarter generally does have a dip, and you can see this in prior years relative to four Q. And some of this is seasonal. Everyone pays higher FICO costs. You know, of course, there's a fewer number of days in Q1. So, as we step into that, that that should be that should have a, a bit of a of a softer point in, at the beginning of the year. Moving into Q2 and one, it's, it's going to be impacted by what Ken's talking about in terms of continuing to build out and finish, you know, by the end of the second quarter, early in the third, our H2LA, you know, positioning. So that would result in a little lower earnings growth during those first two periods as basically the deposit growth, which we think is going to be fairly strong, is diverted into a, an asset class that doesn't yield as much. As that changes and as our loan to deposit ratio is in the 80s, so if I, by the by summer, um, that's going to be a more proportionate growth rate in loans as well as deposits, and hence you do get a, um, a growth rate, you know, picking up through the end of 24 and carrying into 25. That's helpful. And I guess the other question you mentioned about never getting paid on the for loan growth back in the day. When we think about how you're acquiring and what type of deposits you're acquiring today, maybe can is it different? I mean, you've, you've obviously emphasized the regions and the deposit growth from the regions, but I'm just wondering uh, if your view around large, chunky deposits uh, has changed given sort of the emphasis on liquidity. And as a result of that, should we expect you to kind of go about differently when, when it comes to deposit growth and client acquisition? Yeah, so uh, thanks for the question, uh, and I think uh, uh, your question's insightful because that's how we're changing around the business. So, you know, we've been working on a number of new deposit verticals that are really getting legs behind them, and uh, the first is settlement services, and just this quarter alone, we grew settlement services $2.1 billion. And so there, the deposits are a little larger, uh, and but but the growth rate is uh, steady and consistent. So as you get to a certain level, large deposits will flow off, and then you got to bring other large deposits in. Additionally, we have our business escrow and corporate trust business, and that too is beginning to get some legs. And in this quarter, that grew by 350 uh, million dollars. Now that business will continue to grow, but it really will be helped once we get our investment grade ratings back. And go back to the pivot. The pivot is to get to our investment grade ratings so that corporate trust could be a bigger contributor to our deposits. And we think with an over 11% CT1 ratio, mid-80s, you know, uh, loan to deposit ratio, steady asset quality, uh, we will position ourselves to get upgraded there. Now, HOA has been a long, uh, actually what was probably our first national business line. And that continues to knock the ball out of the park. And usually what is a slow quarter, uh, the fourth that is, they grew $300 million. For the year, they grew about $1.2 billion. And uh, those are steady, smaller uh, uh, deposits. Uh, they come in from either new business that we win and the existing clients growing their book of business. So we get that two ways. Then another business that we're very pleased with was the one we started in early uh, January, January 4th of 2023, which is our consumer digital platform. Uh, this quarter alone, that brought in nearly $800 million. And that's been a, a real home run for us. And that's where we see deposits more in the fifty-three dollars to $57,000 range for each client. Now, for going forward in 
24 into 25, we're going to try to shift the platform from an outside vendor to an internal platform. And so we're going to probably run two platforms for a while as we come up to speed with our own platform. But that will help us also longer term, and it will reduce, not in 24, but going forward, 25 and 26, it will reduce some of our maintenance expenses. And then, last but not least, let's not forget, you know, what we are in our traditional ball game here, and that is the regions. And we've been rethinking, redesigning the regions. That was the reason why we moved uh, Tim out of his chief credit officer role into the chief banking officer for the regions. That's why we brought in Lynn Herden to take over the chief credit officer role. And Tim's charge is to rethink and reimagine the regions and have them be more CNI focused. And with that focus in CNI, of course, there'll be more deposits. And I should mention that $600 million came in this quarter from the regions as well in deposits. But it will also help us grow our fee income. And so we're going to get a twofer there over the long term. It'll be easier to bring in the deposits first, and then that fee income as we continue to sell or cross-sell our treasury management services will help us towards the back end of 24 but again, pick up some steam into the new year of 2025. So I hope that kind of gives you a sense of what we've been doing. And we're looking at some other deposit verticals that are just uh, early, early stages, and we'll probably work on them this year and hope to have them ready to go either in the back end of 24 or early 25. So that was helpful. Thanks for the rundown, Ken. And what I didn't hear was, does this change at all your view around doing any bank M&A where you pick up a retail franchise, bring in another deposit sort of generating engine, or is that not kind of part of the equation today? So today it's not part of the equation. We're not talking about M&A at all. Uh, you know, again, we're talking about the 11% CET1, kind of move that upward. Um, but it, it, it will at some point, the M&A question will, or conversation will come in play as we continue to get bigger and bigger. If we kind of do what we think we're going to do with deposits, then that will be brought into play as we approach $100 billion. But frankly, that's a premature conversation at this point. I think we still have a couple of years before we get to $100 billion. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Matthew Clark of Piper Sandler. The line is now open. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, everyone. Um, just the first one on on the uh, loan growth guide at two billion or um, five hundred million a quarter. I thought we had um, previously talked about maybe some acceleration in loan growth in the second half. Is that just you all being a little conservative in the guide to start the year, or or should we not necessarily expect to step up in, in loan growth in the second half? So, you know, um, first let me say, you know, Q4, uh, we thought loan growth was going to be between zero and 300 million. And so we were a little surprised that it came in at 850. Um, I'd rather be surprised on the upside as a general trend. But, you know, we're still going to be a little cautious about economic activity going forward. And so uh, we're going to be mind mindful of this recession or slowdown that always is advertised to come but has not showed up yet. And then, you know, we have sort of de-emphasized certain asset classes for now, uh, those being obviously CRE office and residential, just to name the two, uh, some construction areas as well. And so we're just going to stay with the guide of, of 500 million a quarter. We think that's reasonable. And if the liquidity comes in faster than we think, then we'll look to deploy it in, uh, in loan growth. As a general rule, we've never had problems uh, deploying our liquidity and, and getting uh, good, safe, sound, and thoughtful loan growth. Okay. And then um, on the on the fee income guide, um, you know, if you look at the fourth quarter run rate, I think when you make the fair value adjustments, um, the, you know, add, uh, exclude the um, Securities losses. I'm coming up with a run rate close to 124 million. Correct me if I'm wrong. And you know, you annualize that. You're talking about, um, call it 492. 
and your guide at the midpoint is roughly 457 off the last year's base. So maybe correct me if I'm wrong on that 124. Um, and if it is, but if it is correct, you know, it only implies, you know, it implies, you know, you're down 7% um, this year. And, and obviously we, you talked about not, not assuming any uptick in mortgage, but just want to get the puts and takes there of what we might uh, not be thinking about. Well, so we have a few things going on in the uh, on the non-interest income side, um, some of which we're kind of implementing now. We've got a um, um, kind of a service charge revision, you know, that we're going to be undertaking. We think as rates decline and ECRs come down, um, then that puts more clients into a position where their earnings credit rate does not necessarily cover all of their consumption of, of internal services, and that could um, and that could also kind of push that up. So. So we think that um, you know again we're we're looking for growth um, in that category certainly um, kind of going forward and um, and kind of you know expect to see that. Okay, and then just last one for me on the um, interest-bearing deposits. Can you update us on the spot rate at the end of the year and? Um, it, it seems like the uh, the pressure there is subsiding. And and um, kind of how you think about uh, the the beta on the way down on interest bearing specifically? Um, yeah, interest bearing deposit spot rate was 363 at year end. Uh, in in terms of you know in terms of the beta um, the beta coming down, um, you know we think it's going to be um, very strong. Uh, you know we expect betas to be certainly no slower on the way down than they were on the way up. You may recall that, that our betas have been have been faster than industry norms, you know, kind of this entire time. And uh, and our clients are are expecting that. That is that we're we're watching that closely and so are they. So so I, I expect that, that we're going to, you know, be able to pull down the interest bearing costs and for those that are ECR related, pull those down as well and the imputed yields that some of them have, which might be tied to effective set funds. Got it. Okay, great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Chris McGrassy of KBW. Your line is now open. Please go ahead. Oh, great. Uh, good afternoon. Um, Ken, maybe a question on, on the balance sheet and capital. Um, you talked about not wanting to be in the 98th percentile or so in terms of growth perspective because you weren't getting paid for it. But you're at you're going to be at 11% pretty soon. Like, can you open open the door a little bit on on comments about appetite for buyback maybe in the back half of the year? Yeah, right now we have no plans to do a buyback, and 11% uh, is a little more of a floor for us. I know we call it a target, but it's more of a floor. So we want to build above that, and then we'll have growth capital. And as we enter 25. Well, we're going to have a lot of decisions to make. If we see a lot of internal growth in front of us, uh, that's where I like to deploy the money first. Uh, you've got to tell me what the economic environment is, and I'll tell you if we're going to do a buyback. But, you know, really the buyback conversation has not been on the table in this company. And, again, the 11% is a, is a flaw for us. Okay, so so nothing for 24, but perhaps you'll weigh the alternatives between accelerating the growth and and using the capital. Is that is that a fair for 2025 conversation? You know, we spent a lot of time talking about 25 here. I want to get through 24 <laughs> and make everything we just told you, but uh, for 24, I can definitely tell you uh, there, there's no buyback on the table. Okay, um, thank you. In terms of deal, in terms of the the balance sheet, you mentioned the HQLA bill. How um, are you targeting a percent of your balance sheet in, in securities? Um, how do we think of Yasmin this quarter? How, how do we think about just the absolute kind of bridging the eight billion, the two billion? How much will will go to buying uh, incremental bonds? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we, you can you can impute this from kind of our guidance, whereby we're showing you know uh, a billion and a half if you just did it rateably. 
of, of growth in deposits and excess of loans. And, and the preponderance of that is certainly going to go to HQLA. As we talked about earlier, you know, the, the, the first half of the year, kind of getting over that hurdle that we think will be at by in the summer, um, it, you know, is going to do that. So if you just did, that would be $3 billion more in terms, of, in terms of HQLA that would take us to there. And then at that point in time, maybe there's a more, a more proportional growth rate um, between loans and deposits. But that, that's, that's kind of the range of the numbers we're talking about. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Bernard von Gesicki of Deutsche Bank. Your line is now open. Please go ahead. Uh, hi, guys. Uh, just a question on ECR pricing dynamics. Um, I know you noted the ECR-related deposit costs are expected to decline uh, with rates and volume. Just on rates, uh, I believe you have some deposits that pay the Fed funds uh, and others that are in the lower 3% range. So if you get a 25 basis point cut uh, with 100% beta, does that flow through all customers or just the higher cost ECR deposits? And then you need additional rate cuts to get to the to the lower threes before cutting them? Or or will ECR rates decline for all ECR deposits regardless of relationship? The, the, the preponderance of our of our ECR priced uh, price deposits are of the type that that you initially talked about, i.e., those that are really tied to effective Fed funds, and we think the beta with those is going to be very near 100%. Um, the, the second piece, where where rates are are significantly lower, uh, we probably have maybe a stutter step with the first rate increase. We're not necessarily going to be able to kind of fully kind of pass through, but after that. I think we can put them on a trajectory as well, but that those betas will, you know, will be significantly lower. Maybe we can get to 50 on that on that piece of it, but the uh, but the larger piece, um, I think, is going to be at or near 100. And if, if we think about the volumes between those two uh, or the balances, are they much higher for the the three percent, like the lower ones? So uh, once we start getting cuts, even though you have the 100 percent beta. Uh, for the ones paying Fed funds, is it it's just a smaller balance? I'm not sure if you could size it or give um, a magnitude between yeah. the, the two. Yeah, so, um, you know, between what you're going to see in terms of, you know, warehouse lending, some of the things that are settlement services, some of our, some of our uh, uh, HOA deposits, you're probably approximately two-thirds of the number is going to have an elevated beta. Okay. And then if I could just ask one more, um, just on your uh, outlook guidance, uh, just so we think about net interest income, you have the up 5 and up 10%. Um, could you just give us the underlying assumptions, just the, the difference between the two? Like, what gets you to the 10%? The 10% on net interest income is, is a combination of, of um, really the, the loan growth as we move forward. That's what's going to uh, move us in that direction. Um, and the additional liquidity we're bringing in and, and placing that uh, into investments. Yeah, what does the yield curve look like? I mean, if the yield curve tends to be flatter or remains inverted, that's going to probably look a, a little bit better on some of these commercial loans. What does that mix look like, and how is competitive pricing changing uh, for all those items? We, I don't, we don't have a lot of insight into what that might be, um, you know, hence the parameters uh, around, uh, around a, a number that might be more immediate. Okay, got it. Thanks for taking my questions. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ben Gerlinger of City. Your line is now open. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, just had a question. It, it seems obviously a bit more technical in nature, but it seems like loan yields or down link quarter in almost every lending category. I was curious if you can just kind of touch base on maybe the nuance of why. It might be just a technicality, like I said. Yeah, so I, I did talk about a little bit on the um, um, on what happened on the loans held for sale versus investment, whereby we did a transfer from from held for held for sale to investment. That it really was done in the last day or the just before that of of the third quarter. So that full effect there. You know, dropped loan yields back um, to uh, to some degree. There's um, uh, there's you know also um, you know kind of been you know some some mixed revisions in there um, going forward. 
you know, we're still seeing pricing opportunity on the repricing elements. We talked about the $2.9 billion that on average we have rolling or you know, this, this year. And, um, and while the piece of that that is fixed rate, that's probably in, in about 20% of that number. Um, those have a more rateable increase, but even on the variable side, we're still looking at elevated spreads relative to when those loans were um, originated, you know, two or three years ago. Gotcha. No, that's good. So the next question I had was the spreads you're seeing in the market today. Like, it seems like a lot of the 100-plus billion-dollar banks are stepping back in certain categories. Are you seeing better spreads because there's less lenders available or less lending being done from the bigger banks, or is it kind of more just calling your shots and, and it does, you're not seeing too many different um, – because, I mean, you, you do bank solid clients, so they typically would have the best rate available because it's a competitive market. I'm just trying to think about the, the yields going forward and especially pricing in a couple of cuts in the back half of the year. Yeah, you know, uh, it's almost uh, market by market dependent. Uh, there are just things going on in, in, in different markets for us. Um, you know, if you're talking tech and innovation, um, you know, spreads there really haven't moved, but uh, a little more competitive because there's less deal flow, uh, because they're raising less, um, less cash there. If you're talking uh, uh, some very specific lot banking deals, uh, the spreads are strong, and uh, we were getting our, our pricing. Um, and some of these banks are moving in and moving out. It's, it's really hard to give one generic answer as to are they all pulling back or not. Gotcha. Okay, if I could just sneak one more in. It seems like you said 11% is a bit of the floor going forward in capital. And you also referenced the credit rating. The moment we get a, a public announcement from a credit rating agency, is that a catalyst event for you guys, or is it more just you get to the 11, it's kind of what you guys agreed upon, and you can, once you hit 11, you can kind of operate a bit more autonomously? autonomously. Well, you know, um, uh, the 11% is, as I said, a flaw for us. Uh, we have to uh, engage or continue to engage with uh, the rating agencies. Uh, that's usually a two-step process. You know, they usually put you on uh, outlook positive and then come back and, and make a change. Um, as far as I know so far, we got a, a, a change in our outlook from Fitch, but I don't know if there's any other bank that had a, a change in their outlook. So uh, my sense of the rating agencies may be a little slow to pull the trigger, but when we go in there, you know, we want to go in there with great capital levels, uh, a, a firm, steady, stable asset uh, quality, uh, and a very strong liquidity. And that's how we're positioning the company. In the meantime, our corporate trust group is, is still operating and bringing in good business. They could just bring in more business with the uh, upgrade. Uh, to an investment rating, so uh, they're doing just fine. Uh, they would just this would just accelerate their opportunities to bring in more business. Gotcha. Okay, I appreciate it. You'll probably be at twelve by the time you get that announcement, but appreciate the time, guys. Thank you. Our next question comes from Brody Preston of UBS. The line is now open. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Um, I just wanted to follow up on the on the loan yields. Um, I understand the the move from the HFS to HFI, but I was hoping Dale, if you could provide what the spot rate was uh, for the loan portfolio at the end of the quarter. Yeah, uh, seven oh three. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I also wanted to get a better sense for the BTFP. Um, what was the rationale behind paying off the BTFP but not more expensive borrowings? I, I think the last time in your 3Q, 10Q, I think the rate on the BTFP was 476 versus the average short-term borrowing rate of 574 this quarter. Just wanted to better understand the thought process there. Uh, we, we all, you know, frankly, we just thought, you know, we, we didn't need to be, you know, borrowing from the Federal Reserve, um, and so, uh, you know, so we we did that. I, I I agree with you. It's at a it's at a modest cost. 
it was going to mature anyway. This is something that we had acquired in March um, of last year, and it, it was a 12-month deal, so it was a couple months early relative to what it, what it would have been. But we thought we, we thought we just we, it was part of the 2023 situation, and leave it behind in 2023. Got it. Thank you. I, I wanted to clarify just on the ECR-related deposits. I think the slide says you have 17.8 billion of ECR deposits at quarter end. Um, but you got about fourteen and a half billion of NIB. So is there is there another component of the ECR related deposits that's technically still interest bearing, but also gets compensated through ECR? Yeah, correct. So so what will happen is we depending on what type of you know what type of client it is, um, we could have a situation whereby the manager gets the ECR and the owner gets the interest income. So uh, um, you don't really see that in mortgage warehouse because those are really not interest-bearing deposits. But, but on an HOA, for example, it's a dual situation most commonly, whereby the aggregator um, gets, a, gets a, uh, a, a earnings credit rate on the, on the dollars that are owned by the, um, by the HOA itself. That is not interest expense. Uh, because they simply have no claim on that on that liability, you know, to us and, and the deposits of that enterprise. So that's why it's, a, it's a doubled up. Got it. And then the last question I had was just on the MSR loss. I just wanted to maybe understand the mechanics a little bit, Dale. Did you, you know, throughout the course of this past year, did you maybe put a higher mark on the MSR and the correspondent production? You know, like capitalize it at a higher rate and. Did that impact the gain on sale margin at all, at all? And then you'd have to take a loss on it when rates moved against you and you sold the MSRs this quarter. I just want to understand the moving parts there. No, I think, no, no, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it was kind of the volatility around what happened. So we saw, we saw CPRs decline to the slowest that I think, I think I'd ever seen and, and maybe somebody in the business has been around, but they were in like three to 4% of constant prepayment rates. And, and that is exceptionally low. When, when, and then when rates picked up again, I mean, rates fell, CPRs jumped, and maybe it was a little bit of a catch-up from, you know, from uh, refis or whatever that had been delayed. And so as a result of that, we had a, you know, we had a, we had a gain in our, in our hedge that fell short of the loss in terms of the valuation. So in the result was the value of those servicing rights fell by 100 million in the fourth quarter, and we were 14 million shy of what we picked up in terms of gain on the hedge. And that was because we had such a, a rapid velocity change between a very low CPR, maybe the lowest ever, to, to something that was more normalized. So I... I yeah, Brody, I just remind you that, you know, uh, by the end of Q4, the 10-year Treasury dropped 69 basis points from 457 to 388 to just punctuate Dale's point. And, you know, these, these, the MSR balance, we have several outside valuation firms that come in and look at that MSR and value it for us uh, to make sure that, uh, you know, we're within the appropriate range. Got it. Understood. Thank you very much for taking my questions, guys. Welcome. Thank you. Our next questions come from Andrew Terrell of Stevens. Your line is now open. Please go ahead. Hey, good morning. Um, Dale, if I could start just, I, I hear your comments around the, the mortgage banking and kind of the potential upside there not being captured in the go for guide. Um, just to the extent the mortgage market does turn and we, we do end up seeing kind of upside on the fee income front over time, can you just remind us um, the incremental efficiency in that business and maybe just to give us a better sense of how the expenses would, would fluctuate with the, the lift in fees? Yeah, I mean, so when they were a standalone enterprise, they were running about 50%. And when we acquired them, you know, we were in kind of the low 40s and they came in and that took us to kind of the mid the mid. Um, the mid 40s. I, I think that's that's basically intact today. Uh, so yeah. So it's frankly they're marginal 
um, rate of efficiency is pretty close to the banks overall now as the bank has invested in you know elements of that you know that higher cost with technology and some of this risk management infrastructure and, and lower investment yields related to the building of the HQLA. So right now our, our efficiency ratios are comparable at about 50 percent. Um, okay, I appreciate it. Um, and then just looking at the deposit cost expense line this quarter, um, if I compare the, the disclosed expense on deposit costs versus the average balance of ECR deposits, it looks like on a percentage basis the, the cost ticked down a few basis points this quarter. Have you lowered rates anywhere in the product already, or is that more of a function of, of mix this quarter? We haven't lowered rates, but what we have done is we have one-off, uh, you know, clients and said, look, you know, your spread relative to, say, effective Fed funds has been X, and, uh, and we're, you know, we're going to make it X minus, and some of this is going to happen a little, maybe perhaps a little bit later if you're going to do something today, but we've got given them options. You know, if you want to take a rate cut now, we'll, you know, we'll skip the next, maybe the first one you get. So we're, we're pushing those down on a... Um, you know, uh, as, you know, basically individually as we kind of go through this. So we are picking that up now. Um, I think that's going to continue uh, into January, February. And did you see any attrition as a result of those those conversations, or just any any in color there? Well, um, there hasn't been any attrition, and I think and I think that's an input point for us in terms of, you know, what is our pricing like relative to alternatives elsewhere. I think what it means is that, you know, the fever has broken on the rate cycle, certainly, and, uh, and the opportunity to move into either other financial institutions or to move into some kind of off-balance sheet thing that maybe is invested in treasuries, all of those have, have fallen in terms of what the, uh, what the opportunity is and what they might be able to migrate to, and, and I think that has helped us in this negotiation. We do these one-off and to some degree sequentially in case we run into a situation like that where we're starting to see some attrition and we go, okay, well, that's an, that's an important point and then we'll ease off in terms of how many we're doing or what, what we're asking for for them to give up. Okay, great. Really appreciate the, uh, the time this morning. Thank you. Our next question comes from David Smith of Autonomous. David, your line is now open. Please go ahead. Thank you. I want to circle back to those normalized NIM comments earlier in the call. Are you saying that 3.5% should be a floor or more the middle range for NIM in, in a typical rate cycle? Well, that was kind of a, you know, that, that was in a kind of an extended conversation of, you know, you know where might we head over time? Uh, and um, and getting back to you know a number a four handle uh, I, I I don't see that so so you know I mean we're, that, that's an extended you know expectation of maybe kind of where we might be I do feel like that we're you know approaching kind of an equilibrium level now and so the three and a half number is not that far from that but you know I'm not that that isn't our guidance in terms of kind of where we're headed you know in 2024. Yeah, we do okay. think that you know it's ten indicated. Capital. Go ahead. Go on. Yeah, uh, David. Go, David, go ahead. Just, I, yeah. So um, if there's nothing else on, on the NIM, um, talking about capital, if you're going to keep doing a, a high teens. Razi and you know with your loan growth guide I think that only implies something like four or five percent RWA growth this year so that just seems to imply a ton of excess capital being generated and you should reach 11 percent CET one pretty soon um, I know 11 percent is the floor but is there a level where you know you think that it just starts to get excessive and you know even regardless of the change in ratings just it, it that starts to make sense to turn on the buyback if you're still being measured with well, I mean, look I mean, as we're as we're as we climb above 11 
I think it introduces optionality. You, you, can, you can build capital and then that could be part of an M&A transaction. There could be multiple things that, you know, that one could be done with it. Um, but again, you know, it's just, we're, you know, we're not, we're not there right now. Um, uh, and, you know, we're, again, cleaning up, you know, kind of the last few things that we want to change on our balance sheet. And, and by the summertime, I think we'll, you know, we'll, we'll be there in terms of the profile we're looking for for liquidity. Got it. And lastly, on deposits, can you share how much of, of the interest-bearing deposits are indexed to, to a rate as opposed to having some, some level of, of discretion at the bank in terms of pricing? Well, you know, I mean, so, I mean, if you look at our interest-bearing deposit cost, um, you know, you can, you can see that, that that is not as large of a, you know, of a component um, relative to, you know, kind of some of these, you know, ECR elements we've been talking about. So, um, you know, there's, there's some that is, you know, you know a, a little bit higher beta, but it is, it is less significant than on the ECR piece. Thank you. Our next question comes from Tim Brazelier of Wells Fargo. Your line is now open. Please go ahead. Oh, sorry, Tim, your line is now open. Please go ahead. Tima has disconnected. At this time, we currently have no further questions. So I'll hand back to Ken Vecchioni for any further remarks. Uh, well, thank you very much uh, for joining us today. And we look forward to uh, talking to you about